0: Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Well, I'm here with Erica Hermson from the Everwild Forest School in Boise, Idaho. Yep. Tell us a little bit about you, like where where did you grow up and what were some of your early nature experiences or you know, what got yes. kind of you interested to do what you're doing now, just to lay the groundwork?
1: Perfect. Yeah, I grew up in the shadow of Washington's Cascade Mountain Range under beautiful evergreen canopies, frolicking in the wild spaces of the Pacific Northwest. And so right. from a young child, I was always connected with nature. And this sense of place, as they call it now, was really, was, you know, I held on to that through my adolescence and into adulthood. And I really do attribute a lot of my confidence and drive and passion to the ability to fall back onto this sense of place. And I would say that is the start of wanting to create something that also allowed other children to connect to their communities and to nature and to themselves through This sense of place that we, I think, as a society are starting to lose. Right. And yeah. So, so growing up there and, um, and really feeling that connection helped me understand that when I went into, college, I decided to get a degree in environmental education. And that was really fun and exciting. And I got to work with children and understand kind of the demographics I wanted to work with. But after college, you know, so many of us do, uh, needing a nice solid job, I ended up going into environmental consulting, thinking that would be a temporary thing. And I ended up working in the field for about 10 years. And it was great because looking back onto it, it gave me so many tools for project management, personnel management, Budgeting and financing, all that, that hardcore business stuff that I think some folks in this field can sometimes overlook because it is such a warm and fuzzy place to be when you're working outside, you're working with kids or families, and wanting to really connect with nature, which is the kind of the opposite of that corporate, computer-based, policy-based work. And so I do believe that that was a, it gave me the ability to balance both, which was really nice.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with everything you're saying, 100. And yeah, where, what college did you go to?
1: I went to Western Washington University for undergrad. That's in Bellingham, Washington. So I stayed with the West Coast vibe there and was able to get into Huxley College of the Environment through Western Washington University and had some the most amazing professors. And one of our capstone courses was to take a group of disadvantaged youth to an island in the San Juan Islands called Susha Island. And it's a very remote, you can only get there by boat, at, at least at the time. Right. There were no regional airports or anything there. It's a very small island. And we took the kids there, several to their dismay, just didn't really want to be out there. And within a week, we were able to basically transform the perspective of these children who uh, didn't want to be there. They just wanted to be home, either watching TV or doing whatever. And this is before social media really even took off. And our job was to lead you know, nature-based activities every day and come up with a schedule, basically leave, lead a week-long camp. The transformation was incredible of these children at the end and seeing how much they just loved being out there. They felt like they were at more you know at peace more uh they weren't as stressed out they really vibed with everyone and the teachers and it was just a really beautiful thing to see and so in just that one week of working with kids it was apparent to me that man if we could just take this and make it bigger and have not just one week but weeks at a time months at a time whole school year what would that look like for these kids
0: yeah yeah yeah, that's cool. I've heard about, I've never been to the San Juans in that area, but I've heard that they're just phenomenally beautiful with all the driftwood logs on the beaches and just the fresh air and the, you know, eagles flying by and probably like uh, otters and tide pools. I mean, I just like, there's so much input to to kind of connect to with the waves, the water, everything, all of that's like working on those kids in addition to all the things you're doing. So it's just fantastic. To have that, and to have them have that experience, and when you see it happen first firsthand, it's it's kind of a mind-blowing experience to see them suddenly change and grow, or step into themselves in a new way, or whatever it is. So, yeah, yes. that's awesome. I know. So that that kind of got you hooked, and and then what happened? Anything exciting? Yeah. To go from there. Yes. I'm sure the story. Yeah. Didn't
1: then, mean. um, yeah, I, I, after that amazing transformative experience in nature. Oddly enough, that's when I then took a job as the environmental consultant and was in a cubicle and the whole time it just, I was hanging on to that experience that I had in undergrad and really feeling that the impact I was making as a compliance specialist in the environmental realm, although it's important, it wasn't quite what I was looking for. And even I felt more and more disconnected to nature and finding that, you know, it's important as adults too, to stay connected. Or even just reconnect to nature from time to time. And I would say most of my time as a consultant, I was just churning in my mind of what to do, mm. how to get myself into a position where I could make the same amount of money, hopefully, and, and do my work outside, most likely with families and, and children. And I also had a job on the side working as an educator for Seattle's Woodland Park Zoo. And that was super fun. And I've always loved wildlife as well and working with wildlife. And So, being at the zoo was fun to kind of combine the education, the ability to be, you know, walking around with lions roaring and and things like that, and (laughs) helping connect, yeah, helping to connect the students there to the ambassador animals at the the zoo. And so, as I kept working, I just thought, okay, I want to take this further. I'm not really sure how to do this. I'll go back to school. You know, it was my job, my idea. So, I did. And we decided I was, I got married and decided to try out the other coast. So we moved to New Hampshire and I went to graduate school at Antioch University, New England in Keene, New Hampshire. And that was an amazing experience as well. And that is when I first heard about forest schools because right. David Sobel is one of the uh, professors there or lecturers there at Antioch. And I took a few classes from him and it just kind of planted that seed of this idea that I thought I had originally made myself when I was out on sucha Island with those kids and thinking like, how can we expand this to make it not just one week out of a year for these kids? How can we make it longer and more powerful? And lo and behold, it's all over the place, these forest or nature schools. And David Sobel was the one to really, again, help me understand that idea But at the time, I was still really interested in wildlife education. And so I ended up doing my research project in Kenya. And I worked with a nonprofit over there called Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. They're a part of the Cheetah Conservation Fund, which is a huge, wonderful nonprofit that is single handedly saving cheetahs in Africa and Asia. Right. And so I was working with them. I worked out there for. About a year helping do some cheetah research in the bush. And as I was out there wanting to, you know, I'm setting up camera traps, I'm collecting and working with scat dogs to pick up hopefully cheetah scat and figure out where they are, hoping to see cheetahs. I, f- I realized the, the real conservation work was happening when we would work with the community members to help them understand the benefits to carnivores as well as strategies to better protect their livestock because uh, the human wildlife conflict is huge. Right. And so that's again, where the educational piece was reinforced in, in terms of how impactful it can be. And in my opinion, even more so than some of the hardcore like research and the the sexy part of getting out there in the bush and, right. and counting and working with the cheetahs. So Another, another great reminder of how powerful education is and can be, especially when you're working with multiple generations.
0: Yeah. Wow. That must've been really pretty exciting though. Like just being in another country and then running around in the bush, you've got, you know, snakes in there that you don't know anything about, or it's a crash course in like everything, everything Africa. Yeah, definitely out of the cubicle.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it was really helpful too to understand the power of community based work and not just going into some place thinking you know better than them. Right. You know, I think especially with working in other countries, there's a tendency for some programs to do that to kind of have this savior Mm -hmm. complex. And so being able to see how to balance that out with the tools that we can help bring the tools they already have and that they can share with us so that we can all, help each other and increase the biodiversity on this planet. So it was, that was a really cool experience.
0: Yeah. I've read lots of stories of people going to, uh, not just for wildlife, but for, you know, community support or, you know, going to like some places where the people go to Thailand and they're trying to help some group of people who are struggling or, or you go to different parts of the world and you're trying to conserve wildlife or habitat or whatever and it's so much more nuanced than you know what a brochure necessarily will tell you or or even a documentary it, you really have to have like boots on the ground you got to have people thinking you got to have a lot of different people coming in and giving you input all all of which is what leads to something actually being successful
1: yeah yeah it was amazing yeah and so after that i came back after my time researching in kenya came back and Moved back to the West Coast. My husband and I ended up in the Bay Area, California, Bay Area, and I was still working for consulting from the environmental consulting world. Couldn't let it go for some reason. But I still, you know, had all of the, the these ideas based upon my experience with in undergrad and in graduate school uh, with David Sobel and just really trying to synthesize all of that and figure out how this could work. And I started, you know, researching different forest schools around the country. And at the time, so this was a, around 2015, there were several hundred, you know, little kind of nature programs in across the United States and many in various forms of Something like you were doing more like wilderness-based education, others that are more like environmental education and working more on the science stuff and summer camps and things. And so I was trying to figure out what other models I could pursue where it is a more extended amount of time and even could replace conventional education as a whole. And I found, you know, a lot of information based on the forest and nature schools in Europe and just really started diving into all the research and reading and figuring out what that looks like. And I uh, then had my first child. So I had a little girl and I uh, then started looking into just education in general. And and I knew that at the time and even now, you know, childhood, depression, anxiety, obesity, suicide is higher than it has been uh, ever and i was thinking you know how am i going to save my child from this dismal friend and i thought i have to create the antidote basically i have to figure mm-hmm. out how, how i'm not going to let her go down this path and and i'm still connecting the dots to this nature-based education idea which again is alternative and as a working full-time parents not necessarily feasible so Even when we started looking around for elementary schools, I wanted something play-based and lots of outdoor time which is really hard to find in the public school system based on you know just the the requirements of the high stakes testing and the academification of early childhood which is just rampant in our country and so i became even more impassioned to do something and that's i ended up getting a job with lawrence livermore national laboratory it's a large global security laboratory federal laboratory in bay area and was got pregnant with with my second daughter there and again still it was all just in my mind like i have to do something right, and i just right. didn't know how to do it and feeling like the time isn't right when the time is right I can stop this and open up nature school and that is when we got in this really uh, traumatic car accident and we uh it was I was pregnant with my my second child I was we were on our way my husband and I were on our way to pick up our first daughter from daycare you know I was mildly injured but more just traumatized from the experience right, and absolutely. yeah and as I'm, you know, sitting there in, in the accident, in the uh, accident, the scene of the accident, I was just thinking, you know, the, one of the biggest mistakes I feel like sometimes we can make is thinking that we have time and thinking this could have been my time. My time was almost up. And even the, the police officer said, had he just been two more inches to the right, he would have gone straight through your door and right. you'd likely not be here. And so that experience was really what pushed me to, to take action. And this accident triggered something, um, put something set something into motion that made a positive impact in the world. About a month after the accident, uh, my husband and I started looking at different places to live because we knew that if I were going to start a forest school, we'd probably need someplace more affordable to live. uh, So I could get that going. And um, we landed on Boise because at the time it was was a growing city, but not as expensive as many other places. It was still in the Pacific Northwest and in the Boise area did not have a 100% outdoor forest school. And and they're an outdoorsy group of people over there, so we decided to pick up and we moved. And within a few months, we moved. And two months later, I started Everwild Forest School. So it was really just one of those things, which is like that was set in motion and just bam, bam, bam happened. And then, of course. A few months
0: after that, COVID. Boom. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Wow. That's really that's really a powerful journey. Just you know, I I mean, I remember having a similar accident. I was hauling firewood and on a dirt road that they had just graded, and I ended up hitting a tree. And I I walked away from it, but people were like, "How did you walk away from that?" They were like, "There's no way anyone would walk away." And I remember going like, "Oh, maybe I maybe I shouldn't wait around. You know, maybe I was given a second chance." to do something that's worthwhile, let's, let's make, let's get going, you know, so uh, that I can totally relate to that feeling. So very, very strongly.
1: Uh, yeah. So was it after that, um, where you also dove into your passions? and?
0: Yeah, pretty much. That's, that's when I started, you know, running, running actual programs very actively. And instead of just sort of taking a job here or there, but I would, I really pursued it. So
1: yeah. so yeah, so and you
0: so you just when you went out and did that, what what model uh, were you using for your forest school? Like what what was the first uh, yeah. plan? Did you actually kind of create a a new strategy, or did you go and get like a certain kind of training and then model it exactly from that? Or
1: yeah, that's a great question. So I started my my idea with Everwild Forest School is that it would adapt the same or similar model as the Cedar Song Nature School in Washington. And if you're familiar with the Cedarsung way, it's 100% child led. So you kind of you, you go in with maybe your you go into the woods with, you know, safety equipment or whatnot, and a great attitude and your gear and it all unfolds in front of you. And it's beautiful. And it works really great with the young kids. And that's what I thought would be effective in my community. And I think uh, that was another great way of understanding how to be to your community, mm-hmm. the same way that I had to be responsive to the community in, in uh, Salama, Kenya. And understand that, you know, perhaps that's not exactly what the families want or need. Right. Um, and also when, when, when I'm in a place where forest schooling is, is kind of a new thing versus Washington where they, I mean, now they even have their licensing program for outdoor preschools. I mean, it's a pretty, it's definitely more well-known in Washington and Oregon than it is in, in Idaho at this point. People maybe go into the Cedar Song school or any other schools with that type of model and understand what they're signing up for. When they were signing up for Everwild and they hear that, oh, we're just dropping our kids off to play in the woods. Like, why would we do that when we can do- go to a preschool that's going to help them learn their alphabet and one, two, threes and ABC, you know, like all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, what's the point? And so I with I think we would have had a harder time with this model had there not been COVID. And I, I yeah. I, like you mentioned luck, and I do feel like that really did play into success of Everwild because- once COVID, so we launched in September, 2020, uh, you know, that's the height was one of the heights, airpoints points of COVID where things were still unknown mostly and schools were shut down. So people didn't really have a choice, but to find something. Yeah. Their kids in. And also we were going to start with, you know, four to six year olds. That's it. And maybe like 20 kids and a couple teachers. Well, with the demand and with all the schools closing, I said, okay, let's go up to age 12. Why not? And then eventually let's go up to age 14. Why not? There's the demand. And we opened with 150 kids and 16 wow. teachers. And that was really incredible. But senior song model did not work for the community here. So I went back to David Sobel, you know, my former um professor, lecturer, and asked, him some questions about it and he was great in talking you know more about place-based education and how especially with the older kids that model works tends to work really well and it does incorporate more structure rhythm lessons and strategy that that I think at least in my community was what they were looking for and it still incorporates the outdoor free play the risky play it does still incorporate that inquiry-based piece where children can ask the questions and we build upon that. But at least we have kind of some guiding, something to guide us along, especially yeah. with the, again the older kids. And so he really was really helpful in advising me on kind of some of the steps forward. So right now, as it's evolved, Ever Wild Forest School implements a place-based model. So that incorporates community, meaning both human communities and and nature, natural communities, uh, as well as the seasons, you know, what's happening in real time out there. And all of our classes take place along the Boise River, which is a really great map to follow for education because it fluctuates during the year in terms of the, the flow. Uh, we have different animals and plants that that visit during the year. And so it's just a guiding beacon for us that informs our curriculum. And, and our curriculum incorporates concepts in math, science, history, language, arts, and art itself in a really beautiful way that balances academics with just unstructured free play in nature.
0: Right, right. So these are all really interesting decisions that you were making and when you when you first got it together and all these kids are signing up and everything parents are signing their kids up was there a moment of panic like oh no i need more teachers oh
1: because
0: yeah I, yeah I, I don't know
1: Well, yeah, I mean, oddly enough, I I somehow got received so many applications with just incredible people who, most of whom were actually coming from the public school system and looking to supplement what they were doing online with kids at the time, something outdoors with with kids that they could be with, you know, and see. And I remember as I was hired, you know, interviewing people wondering, okay, am I looking for a public school teacher? Is this going to be way off base? Are we going to be just butting heads? But the kind of the, the cool thing was that at least all of the teachers that I have hired to the states, they have seen what it's like in the overcrowded schools with the high stakes testing and all the bureaucracy and red tape when they just want to care for these kids and they do their best and their hands are tied in so many ways that it can be very frustrating and, and many of them become jaded. Yeah. And so I was having those people come to me and, and feeling very passionate about education, also wanting to support the kids in a, in a more powerful way, at least that they felt could be better, they'd be better serving. Right these kids in this way. And, and so it's been great because I did not have any experience in the public school system. So it's wonderful to have an informed team who, you know, they'll say, if a parent comes to us being like, why can't my kid multiply by fives right now? And we can say, oh yes. Okay. In the public school system, they would be expected to do that at this point. Right now we are working on, you know, table arrays using rocks and multiplication arrays, and your child just is not quite there yet. But they're building skills in critical thinking and creative thinking. They're doing everything else that they need to do to build that foundation so that they will hold on to skills needed to multiply by fives or do any type of math because, you know, working in nature, you're working in, in math really. And so they had the ability to talk to the parents in a way that I felt like I couldn't because I was all glowy and, you know, oh no, it'll be fine. It'll all fall into place. Yeah, exactly. I've also had like uh, national parks rangers work for me and environmental educators in general. And sometimes those folks can be a little harder because they have so much knowledge. About nature, about the way that they have been taught to do things, that it's it's harder to break into the place-based model with them, and you know even in environmental education when there's so much environmental science-y type uh, lessons that are very teacher-directed, it's harder to say oh step back a little bit more like let's like, we can still work on this project or at least hit these skills that we're hoping for without it becoming the sage on the stage. You know, we getting in that guide on the side is so important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. You, you lucked into being in a time when public school teachers are all somewhat jumping ship in a way from a system that's not working for them. So you jumped into Idaho, no other programs going on there overall to also having Teachers that are ready to jump in and you had all those kids and you know, COVID, everything. So it's a, it's a remark, it's really remarkable. That's all I can say. Oh
1: thanks. Great. Yeah. Sometimes it still doesn't feel real. Like I mean, we were only we just finished out our third school year. So it's amazing to think and now we have a staff of 28 and we have six locations across the Treasure Valley in Idaho. And, you know, we, we're becoming a pretty well established nonprofit organization with a, a large budget and, and policies and procedures and, you know, all the things. And uh it is still amazing to if people to think, oh yeah, this is like a real legit thing that I'm running. Yeah. And you know, yeah, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. That's great. I mean it's a it's a it's a really good testament to the fact that like the models you're using are holding up, they're holding up under the scrutiny of like, say, uh, public school teachers, not that that's the bar, but it's also holding up in terms of parents, you know, that you're finding a model and then you're finding your way to also incorporate those more traditional for a school concepts into it as well, like you said, and yeah, and find a way to be successful and and you're being, you know, once when, with success oftentimes comes, I don't know what, I don't want to say respectability, but that's not the right word but people look and go whatever you're doing is being successful so therefore how do we model that how do we use that because lots of schools are looking for answers and would love to see their programs grow in the same way too i would imagine cuz i mean why are we doing it if we're not actually helping children and you know making exactly. a difference for them
1: Yes, I think, you know, another another reason I think why this Everwild Forest School has worked so well in our community is, is the teachers coming from these backgrounds of professionalism, such as not just public school, but we have, we've employed outdoor occupational therapist, and Mm. a early intervention literacy specialist. So we have some of these support systems that we've put in place that have informed the way that we're able to support the children which has resulted in several kids coming to us from the co- kind of more conventional schooling system where it's just not working for them and they're able to come out here and uh, it's still challenging because we don't employ behavioral specialists yet. You know, we're still limited especially when we have a wide open space next to a rushing river and just two teachers to a class. But, you know, we do, we do, we have been working with families who bring their own, you know, the uh, there's agencies that will provide aids that are paid by, through other plans. And so they will bring their behavioral aids with them. We link up with, with other professionals in the community to help support the kids, whether they're doing OT or speech therapy or something like that. And so, you know, really digging into those services that are, I think, above and beyond what so many nature schools offer, because I am really trying to, turn Everwild into something that can be a formal replacement for the conventional educational model. And so we started this past year by doing that with kindergarten. And and prior to that, all of our classes are partial day. So we do um, do like a a family, uh, we do like a toddler program where it's their toddler and their grown-up and that goes through age three. And then we have a four to six-year-old class, that's our early learning class. And then we have a homeschool enrichment class, that's seven to 12. And uh, those are all partial day programs, just like three hours each, and it's been that way since we started, and it continues to be that way. But we also have added our forest kindergarten, and that's for you know kids five and six years old, and it's every day of the week from nine thirty to two thirty. But you know that's a long time to be outside anyway. So I mean, as right, much right. as we love being outside, we don't have to be purists. It's okay. And so we actually took a twenty foot cargo trailer and retrofitted it. We insulated it. We put in um, electricity and heat. And that has become kind of our base camp, our mobile classroom for this kindergarten. And we just, you know, closed out the school year with a graduating class of eight children. And, you know, we're super proud to say that they all, you know, the few of them had their own behavioral or learning struggles, challenges that they would have had anyway, that they've been working through. majority of the children were able to test in at grade level at several of our private and charter schools here in the Boise area. Like one, yeah, there's a school here called Challenger. I think it might be a national chain. Not sure. But they're pretty, I mean, it's a challenging school and and very rigorous with their academics. And our kindergarten, one of the kindergarten students tested in perfect for first grade after spending the whole last year majority playing uh, outside, but also working with our literacy specialist and with our curriculum. So it's yeah. really cool to have that proof of concept that it can actually work yes. as a replacement.
0: Yeah. When I when I hear you talking about this, this is really interesting because you're demonstrating two things that I can see, which is, you know, you're taking the concept of for a school, the ideal, you know, you look at something, you go, oh, this is how it works in Finland. This is how it works in Sweden. This is how it looks in Norway. This is how it is in the UK, Canada, wherever. And And then you're looking at this and going, okay, I suddenly now have tons of children, you know, not just like, oh, we have, you know, six kids in Sebastopol, California. And so we're going to hang out in the Redwoods and we're going to have a good time. And is it successful? Yes. But, you know, you kind of can select the right six kids to be able to do what you want to do. And it can be very easy because you just, you know, you're not pushing a lot of edges, but suddenly you go, okay, now we have 20 kids or a hundred kids or whatever. And then with, with those masses are children who are struggling in various ways. And you're basically saying, well, let's get help. What do do you do in public school? You get help. You know, you bring in people who can support you, figure those things out. Um, Mm -hmm. even though public schools I know can struggle to figure things out, but in, in general, there's an idea of, yeah, we're going to keep moving forward to try to fix it and try to get better. And it's just a tremendous amount of work to actually do it. You know what I mean? Like sometimes people get so excited about like say, oh, Wilderness Summer Camp. Oh, it's so great. And I'm like, you don't really get how much work it is to put that whole thing together and then to do it. Not only just to, you know, I mean, just the sheer amount of, like dedication you have to do to do that. And on top of all the logistics and everything else, you have to also then have a lot of room in your, in your, in your, in who you are to make a real connection, a real human connection with those kids. And so many times I've hired instructors who were like, I'm a wilderness instructor and they like the idea of the wilderness instructor, but they like it as long as they don't actually have to then go, Oh, five kids couldn't make a fire after my class. So I need to change what I'm doing. And they don't like, oh, I don't want to change. This is how I do it. This is what I do. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not getting the outcome. You know, so it's like you wouldn't hire a bridge builder who went, oh, I can't build that bridge because this is the way I build them. And, uh, you know, if your car doesn't mind taking a four foot jump uh, off yeah. the edge and there's a gap there, but so what? It's OK. Just yeah. what everybody does. And you're like, yeah, you're. we're not going to hire you again because you're not actually Help it, you know. You're not growing yes. in that. And what I see with what your school is, and I, and I think this is true for a lot of other schools, is that there's an ideal, and then there's the the goal is to go. Well, how do we, how do we really serve those kids? And if we can serve them, that's the that's the goal. You know, it's not the goal isn't to stay ideologically pure because mm-hmm. this is how they do it in someplace else. It's the goal of how do we do it and yes. and make this work and still and still hang on. The ideals are still there. It's just that they are maybe going to look different a little bit.
1: Yes, yeah, and and I agree. Like when if you have someone um, who's coming in with kind of a set expectation of of what they want that what they want out of it. Which first of all, it's not about that. Yeah, it's about what can you what can you provide these kids so that they get what they need out of it. And like the your bridge building, you know, example of you know we can't just hire someone who wants to just build the bridge that you know lays a bunch of logs from point A to point B. They have to do the engineering, they have to do all the right. foundational work and all of that. And the same, so the same goes with the children. So yes, the exciting part of the nature based education might be to explain you know, show children what a crawdad is doing for example uh you know while well, it's molting look at it you know and being all excited about it but then maybe a kid got splashed and now they're bro- melting down because they have sensory challenges and they don't want to be wet and okay now it's cold and this kid doesn't want to put his, his hoodie on and you know all work yeah. through all of that and how to help children you know stay regulated and conflict mitigation in your group and you know just group management in general staying safe. Yeah. all of that goes into it. That is, you know, it's almost like the uh, the teaching part can come secondary sometimes.. Right, and right. so I think for educators to understand that when they're going into this, there's a heavy piece of work that needs to be done if you don't have it already to understand child development and group management, and safety, that all needs to be at the forefront before we start talking about pollinators, you know? so (laughs) Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we found it like a lot of times in my early years of doing summer camp, the staff would be cooking, we would be gathering firewood as we went, trying to teach all these things and, you know, trying to engage all the children and, you know, in like a one week or two week summer camp. And we would just be so exhausted at the end of the day, because we were just doing way too many things. You know, oh, oh, all of a sudden, at the middle of the night, there's a big wind that comes. So now the tarps fall off the tents, which are keeping them dry. So we have to go out and re-rig the tarps at two in the morning. And what I found was like when we were doing that was this this idea of, oh, sometimes it's helpful to have some kind of infrastructure in place. Like maybe we actually have dry firewood. So we're not burning wet wood because it rained for three days straight. And now everyone, you know, dinner's taking really long time. Everything, it's just smoky everywhere around the fire. All these things that are stressful, you know, that add to As- both our stress and the children's stress. You just kind of go, all right, well, what if we just eliminated that by getting firewood and getting it, you know, so it's all dry, so it's easy to use or whatever, whatever those things are that can kind of like take the pressure off of the situation. And then within that, you can sometimes say, okay, you know, before I can teach fire making or whatever it is, you know, it's hard to teach something when people are stressed out and they're not, they're not sure where they're going to sleep or where they're going to eat or what, what's going on. So it's like you really have to reassure them in a lot of ways and and then be willing to just be there with them even if you don't teach them anything like you might not be able yeah. to do anything except like figure out how to help them get their feet warm or they're tired of walking or whatever and just and yes. to just be there with them as a human being together having an experience and yes. and when you have that 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 goal of like a, you know, I don't want to say ego in a bad way, but you have that ego goal of like, oh yeah, I'm, we're going to, I'm going to show them how to do all these things. It's going to be great. And then you don't get to that. You have to find a way to then, you know, turn it around or I don't know, figure out a way to adapt that. that's kind of what we had, we did for years and years. It's just every year I was trying to look it back and go, yeah, let's change that, that this will help my staff have more bandwidth it's it's just it's just a phenomenal matter. I mean I wish parents and I know this is a forest educator podcast not forest parent podcast but I wish parents knew just how much directors like you care about kids, care about their teachers, care about the program and are trying every day to solve these problems and do it in a way that is something that will work and it's just a lot. Yeah. I mean it's I mean, a lot so,
1: and sometimes yeah. sometimes people fail and I think that's yes. the other thing is wanting especially in you know nature education or you know schooling you want nature is for everyone you want to be able to have an accessible program yeah. But while also being humble and realizing what your limitations are, and, you know, we've actually had times in our program where the children, a child or two, they, they were just not, they're not successful in the program. And, you know, it was severely dysregulating for them to be out in the cold. It was, um, they had a really hard time with their emotional regulation and provide, you know, having safety risks with other students um, or eloping, you know, running off. And and in those moments, even though you want to do everything you can for the kids, recognize Recognizing that there are some resources that can be found in a different educational setting that we cannot provide and to you know, have that moment come to light moment It's like this isn't we, we want this to work so bad for your kids. We believe in this so much. Um, and right now this is this is not serving your child. So right. let's try again later, you know, some other time. And I and that's okay. I think some some people need to realize that if they don't have the structures in place to support children who have maybe more specific needs or struggles, uh, it's okay to offer alternative suggestions that are outside of your program or else it just is a disservice to that child.
0: Right, right. I mean, that's, I mean, it's hard to do. I I mean, I've had a lot of kids go home from different, not, not usually in one camp, but over the time, you know, you just kind of go, oh yeah. And I've learned to be very quick and say over the, over time is to just go, Hey, it's going to be a lot better for everyone and save the child being stressed out and the staff and all the other kids in the program. But it's hard to do. It's hard. So
1: hard. Yeah. Especially when in kind of the forest school realm. As a program that is working to offer an alternative to different educational models, a lot of times it it does skew toward the children who have not found success in other places. So it's like almost they come to us as the answer and they have those expectations like, okay, this is what's going to work for my child. And then it doesn't because we are not equipped with the specialists or or we, we don't have private land. We're all, we operate on public land been by a river. So it's just, it's, it's hard to uh, have those conversations with parents and let them down in that way. And it, it's really a struggle. And I but think that is one resort,
0: right? Sometimes yeah, you might, yep. they might've bounced from one to another to another. And then you're like, okay, you're, you know, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my, my yes. own. Hope. And, and at that point you're like, Hey, I'm really sorry, but yes, you know, like, yeah. And, yeah. and there are parents that have situations like that and it's heartbreaking because you want to be able to do it, but Yes. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's so tough. Yeah, and you know, another thing too is is recognizing because we we do have an application process, as most schools do, and we do ask the question, you know, does your how, describe your child? Do they have challenges? Like what what challenges them? What what easily triggers them into a dysregulated state? You know, things like that. And if there are some. Red flags. We'll have those conversations with parents and see if it's a good fit, yes. so that we can avoid. Because uh, it does tend to also bring in the kids who um, they they either come to us because they love the model, they love being outside, and that's where they want their kid to learn, or they're coming to us again because it's it's the only it's the last resort and right. trying to pick through those children and families because a lot of times too, if we are the last resort, it's I've found it more difficult to work with the parents in that way because they are so. Desperate and looking for specialty services, and and we do provide some sort of specialty service. It's it might not be the one that will actually fit the child. So right, yeah. yeah,
0: totally, yeah. It's really interesting when you look at I think for for parents who are are struggling, right, and they're desperate for something to happen. And sometimes they're just completely overwhelmed because they don't really know, you know, with if the child is autistic or, you know, when you say like emotionally dysregulating, like what that might mean is like them yes. laying down and not refusing to go do anything or climbing a tree and not coming down or just having outbursts or whatever you know, they don't know how to deal. like mean, they're dealing with that all day long. And so they're just desperate to go, hey, can you take my kid for three hours, please? I mean, I've had, I literally have had parents who have autistic children just in my area who would call me and say, can you just take my kid two days, three days a week? I'll pay you a bunch of money to just Uh-oh. hang out with them, whether it's like timber framing or, you know, going for a walk or anything. And because they just, they're just exhausted and they don't know mm-hmm. quite exactly where their child's going to fit in and and they love their kid and they want their kid to feel appreciated and and they know that your organization cares of, would care about them as a human mm-hmm. being and would treat them with respect and and everything and to then be able to say hey no I can't do it it's it's really heartbreaking
1: yes it is and you know I I do say that, that those parents are on to something because I mean, nature, as you know, uh, so many of us know, can be so therapeutic to children yes. with a variety of challenges, and you know, in our program, we have, okay, I, I would say at this point, we probably have about 15 students, uh, autistic students, and one of whom actually started with us, he he, he was uh, seven years old, and he started, and he had maybe six or seven words, uh, and by, this, by the end of his first year, he had over 100. He was working with our OT, who was on staff at the time, he also had, of course, his own therapies he was going to. So it's not just us doing this,
0: but a
1: group of people, but also just just nature in general, being able to find his balance on logs and just, yeah, do things that he wouldn't be able to find in a clinical setting or in a school. And so I also sympathize with parents seeking this type of program because it does show that it can help so many kids. And so they just, you know, making sure that we, that whoever the program is, has the support system in place, depending on on severity of the challenges that the child is experiencing, but it is amazing to see in so many cases that uh, it actually is successful. You know, it can be very successful and healing and we've taken chances on many children and actually have had a lot of wonderful outcomes that I don't think they would have had in other settings so right yeah it's still really great when it can happen
0: yeah it seems like sometimes like nature and or a program like yours or you know even like a summer camp but it can give children a chance to kind of reset you know so like for, for a lot of students that would come for our summer camps they would they would experience um a social reset. Like in other words, nobody knows them. Nobody knows if they're yeah. a loser or, you know, the person in charge or whatever, a leader or whatever they can come there. They're a blank slate and they can be whoever they want to be. And they can find their way socially in a whole new way, which just gives them a lot more experience to go back to when they go back home, you know, cause they, now they, they see themselves in a little different way and, or being in nature, just not having the pressure of, You know, I mean, for a lot of people, don't realize like people who are autistic or, you know, different, neurodivergent or whatever, like oftentimes they just have like experience after experience after experience of a failure. And yes, and it can just really wear on everyone. know that okay this isn't working. Okay, now this isn't working. Okay, we're trying that. And so even just to get them to like, you know, you know, come and hang out and like you said, just balance on a log and do a few things and just it might take like they might have to do that for three months, you know, just to kind of have that break. And then and then at some point they start putting a few things together. And when you see that you're like, oh, this is awesome. Yes. We had, we had a boy who came to our camp once, uh, back in my, in the very early years. And he, he just laid around, he didn't engage. And like, we were teaching all kinds of different things and he would rarely engage. And when he did, he, you know, he wasn't fully able to like be successful. And a lot of the other campers, I remember just going like, what are you doing? You're just laying around. Get up, It's so fun. Get up and do it. And he just mm. didn't do it. And I just told the campers and the staff, like, just, it's okay. He can just hang out. It's not, there's no pressure. And, yeah. and then, you know, it wasn't until, Like his mom put him him in the program. We didn't know at the time, but his his mom and dad had gotten divorced and his dad was going through, you know, was in the process of a battle with cancer and he didn't make it eventually, you know. And this would have been good information for us to have. But we didn't have that information, but we just went, let him do his thing. And then he came back the following year. And then, you know, within like a, the next year, he he totally had loved the idea of everything. He just couldn't bring himself to do it. Mm-hmm. But getting that space, you know, sometimes you're just dealing with stuff and you don't even know it. Right. And we're right. all right. All the time. So
1: yes. Oh, that's a great story though. That he was able to come back and engage. And I'm sure he took a lot of the knowledge he learned with him and was able to apply that. Oh, yeah. Second he time- was one of
0: my best instructors for years. I mean cooked all the food one year. I mean, like was a real leader, everything. He was fantastic. Cool. Ended up going to Cornell. Like he's a brilliant, wow. a brilliant guy, but yeah, totally. Oh,
1: cool.
0: Well, you know, this has been awesome. Everything that you've been talking about to me, I'm just like soaking it up. And I'm, and I hope that anybody listening to this, who's thinking about running a program or running a program and just wants to get inspired, will appreciate everything that you're sharing. Cause it's, it's it's really your story is really important not just the hey look we did it and we we're making it but the idea of each step and how it's going and yeah it's awesome thank
1: it's you awesome. Yeah. yeah well it's been a pleasure chatting with you
0: thank you so much for this conversation i really appreciate it what's the best way for people to get a hold of you if or to just see your website or you know yeah. find out a little bit more about your organization
1: yeah they can go to everwildforestschool.org uh, that's our website we're also on facebook and instagram as, as everwildforestschool um, so they can see some of the cool things that we're up to there
0: yeah well uh that sounds good i will have all of your contact and other info up on our up on our site so you'll be able to see it in the show notes to be able to i really i love your uh instagram account and uh yeah. all the all the great things you post so
1: thank you yeah, yeah thanks no so much problem. for having me on the podcast i
0: love it all right we'll have fun with those uh kids this summer i know you're done for yes. the season right now but there's always another season coming around the back
1: there's always another season
0: thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature